The autumn statement is done with relatively sparse pickings for pensions, save the obligatory retention of the triple lock to the despair of most people not imminently eligible for it. The LDI crisis, post-mortem on the other hand, is not done yet. The Working Pensions Committee and the Industry and Regulators Committee are both interviewing experts to find out how and why pension funds face a liquidity crisis in the autumn. My name is Alex Janu. I'm the Deputy Editor at Pensions Expert. I'm going to talk to the Lancats' Tom McPhail about the autumn statement shortly. But first of all, I'm delighted to be joined by Cartwright's Sam Roberts, who's going to chat to me about LDI. Welcome, Sam. Good morning. Now, Sam, at the time of recording, John Ralph and Henry Tapper are currently in front of the Work and Pensions Committee and, to my knowledge, have yet to start wrestling. What's your assessment so far of the fallout from the LDI crisis and of the comments made by those involved? It's been a frustrating few weeks for lots of lots of different reasons, um, not least um, an extremely busy and, and hectic period as well. And you know, if we look back on the last few weeks and, and what happened and you know, what people are starting to say about it in the debrief, there were some couple of key events, uh, which we all know about, but just as a reminder. So we had the government scare financial markets, and obviously that's the 23rd of September with the mini-budget, but the real impact came on the 26th and the 27th of September, when gilt yields were rising by around about half a percent each day, which is dramatic, and words such as exceptional and unprecedented have been used. And then the second event was the Bank of England coming in on the 28th. And the reason why it's, it's particularly frustrating in light of what seems to be currently said by the likes of the FCA is that you, know, you take a step back and you've got three government departments, the Treasury and the Bank of England, in my mind, both screwed up in some way, whether it's scaring financial markets or it's coming in very clumsily and forcing yields down. And then you've got the FCA now coming out and essentially it looks like an opportunistic grab to extend more regulation to certain sectors. So uh, you know, investment consultants and trustees seem to be the two key areas where they're looking. So it's quite frustrating that that's the way that it seems to have panned out. And I think it's, it's easy to forget, but if the Bank of England had not come in and forced guilt yields down, actually those pension schemes that were well run would not have suffered to the extent that they have. You know, for example, if some pension schemes have unfortunately had to reduce their interest rate and inflation hedging on the 26th and 27th of September in particular, and if the bank would come in and not disturb the market and force yields down, then those pension schemes would actually be in the same position as they were then in terms of hedging, or maybe even in an even better position. And it is also very frustrating that the Bank of England when they're buying gilts, they're forcing, they're quite happy to force gilt yields down. But when they're selling gilt, it's all about being demand-led and attractive relative to prevailing market levels. In other words, not trying to disturb the market price. So I'm not sure whether the, the select committee will be asking this particular question, but I'll be very interested to understand better why the Bank of England takes an asymmetric approach. Is it clumsiness and incompetence or is, it, is there some purpose behind it? We'll come back to investment consultant regulation. I'm just keen to hear what the the turmoil of September and October was like for you on the ground and you know, how did it affect the day job? It, I mean, it was a hectic time. Uh, there's no, no doubt about that. There was lots of information flying about, some of it contradictory, lots of people trying to take action you know, very quickly. Uh, you know, I'm thinking particularly the LDI managers, but where there wasn't cash available or to check the cash was coming from the right place, then, then you know, we had to clearly get involved. So it's very hectic from a, an operational point of view, but it was also hectic from a communication point of view. You know, if you're getting as an investment consultant, 
not sufficient information or conflicting information, it's very difficult to then communicate that to trustees with any sense of confidence. So that's what really I think was a struggle, but it was a lot had to be done in a very short period of time. So a lot of it is understandable, but I'm sure there will be lessons learned from what happened. And did you experience any, I guess, issues surrounding illiquidity of so-called liquid assets? It's been put to me that you know, there are some even equity funds only dealing on a weekly basis, and that's no good when you've got Andrew Bailey saying you've got three days to sell everything. Well, is that even possible? I mean, did, did that, is that something you encountered, not, not just in equities, but more generally? Yeah, so we have, there's sort of two elements of that illiquidity. So those, those assets which are truly illiquid. So, you know, think of a property as a, as a good example. It's very difficult to sell that building quickly. Uh, in terms of what we saw um, with our clients, we have clients invest in illiquid assets, but it's kept to a sensible amount. So actually that didn't have any impact on our clients. And then there's the other element of illiquidity, which is even if you have assets which are liquid on a daily basis or better, you still need a little bit of time to get the money out. You still need to give the investment manager a little bit of notice to instruct the sale. And then it takes a little bit of time for maybe a couple of days for the cash to settle. So we did have issues around that, that second point. And that was, yeah, that was part of the frustration that everything was happening so quickly. Um, but I was going back to the point that if you had a well-run scheme and they had a cash call from an LDI fund for, let's say, a million pounds, then that million pounds was in the process of being disinvested and making its way towards the LDI fund. So if the Bank of England hadn't forced guilt yields down, that million pounds would have been invested at a similar rate that they'd been forced out at on the 26th or the 27th of September, and the scheme would have been in a similar position and there'd been no harm done. So I hope that gives a bit of an overview of what we went through. Well, let's get to, you know, yeah, keep going with the regulators then. I mean, there have been calls from the FCA and LNG as well, actually, so far for the regulation of investment consultants, although LNG did caveat that that would not in itself have averted the crisis. What's your assessment of how various regulators acted during, you know, September and October? It's not just the FCA, Bank of England, also, you know, TPR. And then what's your take on these appeals for investment consultant regulation? I agree. I don't think that it made any difference. Um, and in fact, it may have, made, may have made things worse. So the problem with regulation is that it can create systemic risk. It forces people to think in a similar sort of way. So if we look at sort of more widely, um, so there's sort of the three, uh, you know, so we talk about government and the Bank of England and then the FCA, and you write the TPR as well. They create, Bank of England created systemic risk through manipulating the money supply and bond prices and equity prices over the past, particularly the past 15 years. Do we then want to create more systemic risk by forcing everyone to think the same and, and you know, act like robots. I, I would say that's actually going to make the situation worse next time around. And investment consultants are already regulated. So I didn't really understand some of the comments made by the FCA. The FCA already regulate investment consultants up to a point. Our firm is authorised by the FCA to provide investment advice and certain investment services. And then we make sure our investment consultants have the right competence and experience to deliver that. So it's not entirely clear to me what the FCA has in mind. I know there's some nuances in terms of the types of regulation. Maybe that's that's where they're thinking about. I guess this is the the golden question that everyone is, is the horror of going before a select committee is trying to answer. You know, is there something fundamentally wrong with LDI as a concept? Was this simply about there being too much leverage in the funds or even just a case of the government choosing to blow up its own debt market in the way that LDI funds could not have been insulated from? Yeah, I, th I think it's more more the second. You know, we shouldn't forget that LDI 
has worked extremely well over the last 20 years and protected a lot of pension schemes from a lot of the risks uh, that come from interest rates and, and inflation. So let's not throw the baby out of the bathwater. That's not to you know, diminish that there were clearly operational challenges. Um, you know, if the LDI manager asks for some cash within two hours, it's going to be a challenge, whatever the you know, whatever setup you've got. But if we also look at sort of what happened, you know, I was looking through, through our client book and the LDI funds that we use, and a huge amount of cash was called into these LDI funds. Only around 10% of those cash calls couldn't be met quick enough, and therefore they suffered some some reduction in their hedge ratios. And all of them were related to what happened on the 26th and the 27th of September. So, given as you, in your in your words, the government blew up its own bond market. Um, I think that might be LNG's words as well, actually. You'd hope that that is exceptional, and it certainly seems to be, at least in recent memory, unprecedented. So I think LDI funds as a concept are still extremely useful tools to manage risk. And so I think they've definitely still got a role. Some of the changes that we've seen, so for example, having less leverage within the funds as a general rule, that directly reflects that guilt markets people are assuming, and they're more volatile than they used to be. So it's more appropriate to have less leverage. But yeah, it's still an extremely useful tool, and I expect us to continue to use them for for many clients where it's appropriate. Brilliant, Sam. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Alex. We're now joined by the Landcats' Tom McPhail. Welcome, Tom. Hi there. Now, as ever with events like the Autumn Statement and budgets in general, it's a case of what made it in and what didn't. So first of all, Tom, what's your assessment of the pensions content that did make it into the statement? Well, there wasn't that much in there. I guess the headline everyone was looking for was was actually the state pension and the triple lock. And uh, contrary to some expectations running up to the budgets, the government chose to operate both welfare benefits generally and the triple lock uh, in line with inflation this time round. I, I think that was extremely welcome in, in most quarters. It's not cheap. But it feels like I think most people would agree it was it was the right thing to do for now. And I think I think there's a longer question there about the sustainability of the triple lock in the longer term. And that's a question that that's a conversation that still needs to be had. But for now, I think you know, it was good that they've they've protected pensioners' incomes through the triple lock for now, g- given that on average, just on average, the, the state pension makes up between a third and a half of retirees' income. And for some people, it's almost all their retirement income. So to lose that inflation proofing right now would have been pretty damaging. Sure. I mean, it's up for review um, early next year. I mean, do you really think that maintaining the triple lock is going to be sustainable in the longer term? You know, in what way could that be reformed? Would it be a case of removing that inflation uh, peg Mm -hmm. during a time of high inflation? Is this merely a cynical political play to secure conservative votes? No, good question. Of course, the other the other thing we saw, um, which kind of relates to this, was the the review of state pension age, mm. uh, which was confirmed. We're going to get the output on that early next year, and the two are interrelated. The state pension costs currently around 105 billion pounds uh, a year. It's not cheap. It's going to get more expensive. Uh, the population is getting older. The shape of the population is changing. More and more retired people, depending on fewer and fewer taxpayers. All that is a problem for a government. So, in the light of 
improving life expectancy as well, a logical thing to do is to raise the state pension age and perhaps to do it a bit quicker. And I note one of the phrases they used talking about the state pension age review was fiscal sustainability. It's not just about the life expectancy. It's also about what the government can afford to impose on taxpayers. So that comes into play. And I think the two are, in a sense, you have to look at the two together. I think the the triple lock has done a huge amount to raise the state pension. If you go back to 2010 and the start of the coalition government, the state pension then uh, was only a bit over five thousand pounds a year, and okay, we've had we've had inflation since then, but we're now about to head over ten thousand pounds a year. That's a pretty substantial increase. The PLSA are currently arguing that the state pension should be brought up to their minimum retirement income standard, which puts it at about I think about ten thousand nine hundred pounds a year. So. Okay, you know, the goalposts keep moving, and I think they're about to revise their minimum retirement standard at the PLSA. But we're getting to the point where the state pension has almost caught up with that. If that's all you've got to live on, it's still not a lot. But, you know, it's not going to take many more triple lock increases to get to that point. So so then the question is, your point, what do we do next with it? Do you just give policymakers back control? Because it's kind of hard for them to exercise control at the moment. Maybe you can come up with some blended formula of earnings and inflation. Maybe we could just go back to a political commitment that we'll, you know, we'll we'll, we'll just we'll just keep up raising it as we go along. But I think people would be uncomfortable with that, given the past history. I would certainly argue it can't keep going forever because it's just ludicrous. Because in the end, all of the state spending would go to pensioners, and we can't have that. There is this argument that it represents a, an intergenerational transfer of wealth from from the young to the old, but. It, counter to that you, you could also say that actually the young you know young, younger men like yourself and, and me uh, tom well we will benefit from it going up at, at, at this rate too in the end we all get it right you know there's mm. and there is some truth to that except the state pension is not you know it's pretty protein it keeps evolving and what the state pensioners of today are getting is almost inevitably going to be quite different to what young men like you get in in decades to come so there is some validity to that argument, but I think you know you would don't want to put too much emphasis on it because uh, things will things will change. Well, I'll let our listeners decide whether twenty nine qualifies as young anymore. But um, the government is under pressure um, to reform the lifetime allowance, and, and yeah. you've spoken extensively on this. And, and doctors uh, are among the highest profile workers who, you know, I've certainly been hit with penalties when they go through theirs. And are you surprised by the lack of acknowledgement of the lifetime allowance in the autumn statement? I thought that was interesting. You know, that was the dog that definitely didn't bark. And they need to do something. You know, I was having an exchange of emails from someone else in the industry today. They're writing a paper on it. The pressure is going to continue, uh, but with good reason, you know, because of the problems in the NHS. I was hearing last week about other sectors. Air traffic controllers apparently are also downing tools because there's no point in going into work because I'll just pay more tax. So, you know, it's not just doctors, but I think the doctors is the most sort of high profile example of the problems the lifetime allowance causes. They are going to have to do something sooner or later. Their problem is you can tinker with it and come up with another quick fix solution that will just make the pension system more complicated. And the, the, the Treasury, you know, there's trust railed against the Treasury mindset and narrow thinking. And to some extent, she was right in that um, for the Treasury, they've got their lines of expenditure. And if if you change one of those numbers, they have a, a panic attack and then need to find something else to fill the gap. So that very uh, accounting mindset 
sort of inhibits creative thinking around these kind of problems. And it does require a degree of creative thinking. It requires, I think, a more holistic approach to mm. uh, how you control the amount of money the exchequer spends in incentivizing people to save for retirement, whilst also actually encouraging them to do so. And the problem we've now bumped up against is the Treasury is doing a very good job at restricting the amount of tax relief it gives out, but not such a good job on encouraging people to save for retirement or indeed to go to work. And that's not a good place to end up. So it would require a lot of political capital. But actually, I'd quite like to see the government get it all out on the table as they kind of flirted with in 2015 and do a proper review of pension taxation. I mean, you mentioned complexity. It was reminded of a conversation I was having a while ago with an NHS pensions advisor. He's telling me he cannot get his head around how the NHS pensions in particular will be accounted for on the dashboard. It's just it's, it's mind blowing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, which of course is coming down the tracks for us, and that's just one more challenge. Yeah, that's no, a very good point. And is there anything else, Tom, you'd like to have seen in the statement? I actually thought it was pretty comprehensive. I think, you know, I mean, yes, we're all heading back to the 14th century, and it's going to get a bit grim. <laughs> and I think Rachel Reeves's response of, look, you know, you broke it in the first place. I think the two, I think the two telling things about her response were, A, she's right. You know, we've had 12 years of... Uh, a conservative-led government. So anything that we're in now is kind of on them, notwithstanding the huge cost of furlough and COVID, uh, the war in Ukraine. So some 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 problems beyond this government's control. But you know they they've had their hand on the tiller for quite a long time. So I think she's right. This is yours to own, guys. But I thought it was also telling she was actually struggling to make any other substantive points in terms of the policy announcements. And given the situation we're in, and you know acknowledging the reasons we've arrived in this situation, I actually thought it was a pretty good budget, you know, in terms of the measures they announced on welfare. This was actually the nice Conservative Party that came out to play, not the nasty Conservative Party. They did the right thing for the disadvantaged in society. They pledged more money for the NHS. They pledged money for education. You know, there's some supply-side reforms there that, that are good, or some supply-side initiatives that are good. And spending cuts to come, that's that's a problem for the next government. So we'll just lay that trap for, for the next government to deal with when they get there. I, I you know, I thought it was a pretty, pretty well crafted budget in, in all those respects. I would have liked to have seen more on the pension tax stuff that we just talked about. But given they were out, I, I thought it was actually a pretty good job. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Tom. Thank you, Alex. Well, that is sadly all we've got time for. Thank you very much for joining us. And if you'd like to watch, read or listen more about the Autumn Statement and LDI, please visit our website at pensions-expert.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.